0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. It's difficult at the best of times to ensure that evidence drives policy making,
1: but it is more important than ever. Amid worldwide shouts of fake news, tonight we are going to talk facts research, evidence, science. We're also very deliberately going to talk about politics because the noise around politics is muddying the facts. Now part of the Cowell Center's mission is to provide a bridge between scholarship policy and legal practice. The Cowell Centre is now five years old and it's still the only research centre in the world dedicated to the study of international refugee law. This work is particularly vital right now, when more than 68 million people worldwide have been displaced from their homes, more than the Second World War. Many of those people have been displaced internally by war. But, and this may surprise you, it certainly surprised me, even more of them have been driven out by disasters and the impacts of climate change. Now tonight, we're fortunate to have three guests who are world-renowned in their fields. Climate change, refuge, refugee law, and where the two meet, climate change and disaster-related displacement. Shortly, I'll leave a half-hour discussion with them before we open up to questions from you. But first, let me introduce them all to you before they each give a 10-minute presentation on their area of expertise. And I must preface these introductions by saying that each speaker has a resume so full of prizes and accolades and other impressive honours that I will only hit upon a few highlights. Dr. Church here was appointed professor at the Climate Change Research Centre at the University of New South Wales last year. Prior to that, he had a more than three decade long stellar career with Australia's premier science organisation, the CSIRO. There, he helped to establish and then lead. Ocean Climate Science Program. Dr Church is one of the world's leaders on sea level science and is chair of the Joint Scientific Committee of the World Climate Program. He's twice served on the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, as the convening lead author for the chapters on sea level change in both 2001 and again in 2013. Dr Church, thank you for being here. Thank you. Dr Jane McAdam is Scientia Professor of Law and Founding Director of the Andrew and Renata Cowell Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. She's a pioneer in research on climate change and disaster-related displacement. She's advised governments and international organisations, including the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Dr McHadden is also Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Refugee Law and co-rapporteur for the International Law Association's Committee on International Law and Sea Level Rise. Her research has been cited by the Australian High Court and the Supreme Courts of the UK, New Zealand and Canada. Welcome to you, Dr. Meadow. Thank you very much. And Dr. Walter Kalin is Professor Emeritus for International and Constitutional Law at the University of Bern in Switzerland, and he also provides strategic advice to governments as the envoy for the Platform on Disaster Displacement, which only last month reached agreement on a compact that recognised climate change as a cause of migration. He served in a similar role for the platform's predecessor, the Nansen Initiative on disaster-induced cross-border displacement. And he served for the United Nations for many years, including as a representative on the UN Secretary General on the for the UN Secretary General on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced People, and twice as a member of the UN Human Rights Committee. Thank you to you, Dr. Catlin. And now, please welcome Professor John Church to begin our presentations.
2: Uh, thank you very much to the organizers for inviting me here, and thank you for the very kind words. I, too, would like to uh, start by acknowledging that today we are meeting on the land of the Gadigal people of the Ararat Nation and I pay respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to thank them for the oldest living civilization for taking care of this land we now call Australia for the last 50,000 years. 50, years. Anthropogenic climate change is one of the most important, challenging and urgent issues facing society today and will be for many decades and I expect centuries to come. Three of the most important findings from the most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change are, firstly, warming of the climate system is unequivocal. Many of the changes we see are unprecedented over recent millennia. Secondly, human interference in the climate system is clear. It is extremely likely that the majority of many of the changes we've seen since 1950 are the result of anthropogenic climate change. And thirdly, limiting climate change will require urgent, significant and sustained reduction in emissions of greenhouse gases. In my own area of sea level rise, uh, the rate of rise has increased and is continuing to increase uh, even now. For all the scenarios for the 21st century, the rate of rise is expected to be larger than we've experienced during the 20th century. This means we will have to adapt, we cannot stop all sea level rise. For unmitigated emissions, the rise could be a half to a metre by 2100, or more, significantly more, if some of the recent results published since the last report are indeed true. Indeed, some uh, have uh, argued that our recent IPCC projections of sea level are somewhat conservative. Under all scenarios, sea level will continue to rise for many centuries after 2100. For unmitigated emissions, the rate of rise in the last two centuries of this, the last two decades of this century are likely to be almost an order of magnitude larger than during the 20th century, and they will continue for many centuries. The rate will be roughly equivalent to the last the rate of rise during the last deglaciation of the Earth, when sea levels rose at a meter per century for many thousands <coughs> of years. For unmitigated emissions, (coughs) ultimately the rise will be measured in metres, perhaps even tens of metres. The question is not whether we will have large rises, but rather how quickly they will occur. Sea level rises results in an increasing frequency of coastal flooding events. There's already been a significant increase, a factor of three increase during the 20th century in the frequency of events on both the East and West Coast of Australia. By 2100, what is currently a one in a hundred year event could be happening several times a year. Rising sea levels will impact coastal societies and environments around the world. About 100 million people live within one meter of current high tide level, and there's about a trillion dollars of GDP in that same area. Double these numbers for five meters of sea level, triple them for. Many of the world's mega-cities, cities cities with populations of 10 million or more, are situated on the coast. For unmitigated emissions, the lands of tens of millions will be subject to increasing frequency and intensity of coastal flooding and eventually permanent inundation. Protection of parts of the coastline, with engineering works like the Thames Barrier or the Dykes of the Netherlands, an adaption through measures such as storm surge warnings and shelters can minimise the impact. However, I think it is inevitable there will be many millions of displaced people both within and to a lesser extent across borders, either by the direct impact of storm surges and rising sea levels or from subsequent events and potential social disruption. So how does science impact policy in this area. I would argue climate change has actually had a major impact on people's nations uh, and policies around the world. As a result, there is a climate change convention, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and protocols for attempting to implement its goals. Many nations have climate change policies for greenhouse gas mitigation and or adaptation, and further strengthening of these policies is inevitable. Even Australia is actually undergoing a revolution in how we generate electricity, and this will continue. It seems to be in spite of current federal government pathetic efforts. Key to the positive impacts of science and policy has been the strong communication of science to policy makers at the international and national level, and to a range of stakeholders, public, uh, community, and government. Today, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is the strongest driver of policy. So what is the IPCC? The IPCC is an intergovernmental panel. It consists of 195 governments as members, They appoint a small secretariat, which assembles scientists to uh, draft an outline of the next report. That is then approved by governments, authors are selected, and go about writing the reports. Usually there are four assessments. These are not doing the science, they're assessing, assessing the science as published in the scientific literature. Uh, these are extensively reviewed by scientists from around the world and by governments. So, for the last report that I was involved in, working group one report, one of the four reports, we had about 55,000 comments on that report. And we have to respond to every single comment. And each summary, each uh, report has a summary for policymakers, which is, has to be reviewed on a line by line basis by govern, governments in a plenary lasting five days. These are extremely intense and sometimes difficult days. The last report uh, was finally uh, finished at 5am on Saturday morning. The governments cannot change the scientific results, but they can delete material if, if agreement cannot be reached. I haven't actually experienced that. Uh, in the working group one report or a lot of reports have had them. The key to their impact is that through this laborious process, the governments actually own the reports. These are not reports uh, that the scientists own, the governments own them. The scientists are merely the workers to produce them. And also critically important is the overwhelming consensus Uh, in the scientific community supporting the thrust of the IPCC conclusions. And of course these assessments would be less valuable if it were not for the ongoing research, publications and communications by the scientific community. In major developed nations there are generally uh, parallel processes with national assessments and national projections made. CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology have made these uh, in past uh, years. Whether this will continue with the recent uh, decrease in strength of the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology climate change programs is unclear to me. Despite the success, I sometimes despair at what passes for uh, informed debate about how Australia and some other nations should respond to climate change. The Paris Agreement has great goals, but the sum of the current promised reduction in emissions are inadequate to meet these goals. And the actual policies that people are implementing are even further away from the Paris targets. As we have seen this week, we in Australia seem to be held hostage to vested interests for minority misrepresentation of the issues, in a quest to achieve a particular agenda and to maintain or acquire power rather than confront national problems. Australia is sensitive to the impacts of climate change and is one of the highest per capita emissions of greenhouse gases in the world. However, our emission targets are way below what is required. They're completely inadequate. Australia has much to gain by committing to international efforts and thereby encouraging other nations to reduce emissions. Even for those parliamentarians who supposedly accept the science of climate change, there seems to be little recognition and understanding of its far-reaching impacts and particularly the urgency of action. The mitigation targets need to be tightened significantly meet the Paris goals, and the impacts of climate change need to be considered right across government. Without these actions, we could cross critical thresholds in coming decades that would lead to irreversible changes, um, which would last for many thousands of years. So what more can be done to address the large gaps uh, between rhetoric and action? Well, last week when I was preparing this talk, I wrote, on a positive note, it appear that Australia is about to have a national energy guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is perhaps the fourth best policy option, it is a step forward. We need now to ramp up the targets in the neck. Well, alas, my uh, optimism... <laughs> Was misplaced. In the ever-changing downward spiral of what passes for national debate, the government has failed to provide national leadership, and it appears we will not even have the fourth-best policy. We have no climate change policy, or mitigation, or adaptation. No strategy, no policy. I have argued publicly that continued science critical to ongoing reduction of uncertainties, increasing the robustness of scientific conclusions and projections both nationally and internationally. However, perhaps more important is that ongoing science is critical for implementing implementing actions in response to climate change. It is not that we do not know enough to act or even how to act in response to climate change. Rather, it is that we lack the will to act as a nation and as a world. Ongoing science underpins continued and strengthened two way communication forward with the full range of stakeholders and is essential to strengthen the will to act. In an area as controversial as climate change, Politicians have a responsibility to lead and overcome narrow interests. If they fail, ultimately public opinion, in my view, will decide the outcomes and the politicians will have to follow or become irrelevant. We can see this is all really happening with energy policy in Australia. Federal government is once again dragging the chain. In Australia, the communication needs to be built by individual scientists like myself, but also our major institutions like the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology. They need to inform governments, business, community groups and the public. Unfortunately, these organisations have become conservative in recent years and, in my opinion, could have done much more to inform the national debate. So in conclusion, there is a path from science to policy, but it is a difficult path to follow, and it's very tortuous, but it can be done It requires significant effort, dedication, and I believe the process could be improved. So I should stop there. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I don't think my mic's on, otherwise I would introduce Dr Jane McAdam.
0: The relationship between climate change and human movement is very complex, and a careful appreciation of its dynamics is essential as a precursor to formulating good public policy. When I began working in this field a decade ago, there wasn't actually a field to speak of, Pretty much the first sentence that any lawyer or social scientist would mutter when standing up to give a presentation about the impacts of climate change on displacement or migration was, I don't really know anything about climate change or climate science, but, and we would begin to draw on what we did know in our areas of expertise to try and draw analogies to it as far as we could, um, that may have some import in this particular context. What we certainly didn't have was a lot of data, or really any data, on the relationship between climate change, disasters, and displacement. And when the media wanted to know, as they very often did, how many climate refugees will the world see in the future, apart from quibbling with the terminology, we simply didn't have the methodological tools to give any reliable numbers about how many people might be on the move. The climate scientists also told us that the starting premise was wrong. Climate change doesn't cause movement on its own. And asking whether climate change has caused a particular event is nonsensical and and fundamentally an unanswerable question. Because no particular short-term event can conclusively be attributed to climate change. What we're talking about instead is the risk or the likelihood of their occurrence. It wasn't until 2008 that the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre, which is the world's authoritative source of data and analysis on internal displacement, began systematically compiling statistics on the risks of disaster displacement. And it's hard to determine long-term trends or future risk from such a small data set. As such, the IDMC, as it's known, has developed models to estimate past displacement from 1970 onwards. And what these models show is a quadrupling of disaster displacement over this period. Detailed and granular research in more recent years has enabled scholars to establish some common understandings about the impacts of climate change on human mobility. And it's certainly now undisputed that climate change, disasters and displacement are linked. And what the statistics tell us is that disasters triggered by sudden onset natural hazards comprise the largest number of new internal displacements each year. We're talking almost 19 million people, or 61% of all displacement internally, compared to 39% by violence and conflict. And obviously, the risk of disasters is exacerbated by climate change. We don't have figures on the numbers of people displaced across borders in this context, but we do know that most movement will remain within countries predominantly, but of course some people will cross borders, and this is where law and policy also need to respond. As I said, climate change from a scientific perspective doesn't cause movement. Um, We can't say there's a particular event caused by climate change that triggers movement. But what we do know is that climate change is certainly there in the mix. And in fact, it's been described to me as the straw that breaks the camel's back. There are lots of overlapping factors that may drive people to move, including a range of economic, social, and political factors like impoverishment, marginalisation, resource scarcity, a lack of livelihood opportunities. So when you put climate change into all of that, as I said, it becomes a straw that breaks the camel's back and it makes the difference, particularly for groups that are already facing uh, vulnerability or, as I say, impoverishment and other risks. Climate change amplifies the risk of more severe and or more frequent disasters, as well as contributing to slower onset processes like sea level rise. But what's very important to realise is that there's a constant dialogue between these slower processes and more rapid onset events. Storm surges, for instance, become worse because they're riding on a a, a greater volume of water, and that's linked to the slower process of of sea level rise. So we're already feeling the, the impacts of sea level rise, even though we might not see whole territories yet inundated. And together, these things can weaken people's resilience over time and can contribute to even further displacement. What we also know is that every community will experience the adverse impacts of climate change and disasters differently. And even individuals within those communities will have different tipping points. What turns a hazard into a disaster is that people's coping capacity is exceeded. So what this means too is that there's really no such thing as a natural disaster, because disasters themselves are always contingent on underlying (coughs) social, economic, political, and environmental factors. From a policy perspective, why all of this matters is because the extent to which law, governments, and institutions respond to climate change-related movement will depend on how they understand the phenomenon. It's sometimes said, that if all you have is a hammer, everything else looks like a nail. Mm. So how we approach this, how we view it, what our mindset is, really matters. We could respond to this issue, for instance, as a protection issue, as a migration issue, a disaster risk reduction issue, an environmental issue, a security issue, or a development issue, or perhaps other kinds of issues as well. Each lens that we put over the problem contains an implicit set of assumptions that will motivate different kinds of policy responses. For instance, as an environmental issue, the movement of so-called climate change refugees, and I put that in inverted commas, from, and again in inverted commas, sinking islands, can be used as a potent political image in advocating for the reduction of carbon emissions and for the protection of endangered ecosystems. The idea of the climate change refugee is certainly a powerful way of illustrating some of the most devastating impacts of climate change on human society. And typically, the people that use that terminology do so from a very well-meaning place, seeking to agitate for political action on climate change. But from a legal perspective, the notion is conceptually flawed. And from a policy perspective, it may lead to ill-attuned responses. So in this sense, there's sometimes a tension between what migration experts are putting forward and what climate change advocates are putting forward, even though the longer term objective is uh, is perhaps, in many respects, the same. It's it's the framing, it's the approach, and it's the language that, that is different. So if I explain why that climate change refugee concept is flawed, if I turn first to the law, a refugee is someone who has a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a particular social group. They're outside their country of origin and their government is unable to protect them. No court or legislature accepts that climate change counts as persecution And even if it did, it would be very difficult to show that it was persecution for one of those five reasons I mentioned, race, religion, and so on. It would also be very tricky to identify the persecutor. (laughs) Even as a merely descriptive term though, the refugee label is at best preemptive and at worst offensive for many of those people to whom it's applied. And in the Pacific, where I did um, some field work, the concept was roundly rejected. So now to policy. The climate change refugee conceptualisation has stimulated calls to expand the Refugee Convention or to create a new climate refugee treaty. (laughs) Governments themselves are very reticent to develop new international standards at this time. But even among legal experts involved in thinking through these issues, there is broad consensus that it's premature to push for a new standard-setting agreement at the global level. There are a number of substantive issues too, such as the fact that the vast majority of people displaced in this context will move within their own countries, and not across international borders, that simply doesn't fit with the Refugee Convention. There's also the the causal complexity of climate change and disaster-related movement that would be quite difficult to encapsulate in a treaty definition if you consider how I mentioned before that climate change might be that tipping point, but we can't say it's climate change itself that's forcing movement. And often people aren't fleeing imminent danger, but they are reluctantly recognising that at some point in the future they may not be able to live where they currently live. And again, that sort of preemptive movement is difficult for something like the Refugee Convention or a similar instrument to recognise when it's it's usually about something that's um, happening or, or about to happen. From a pragmatic perspective, there's a distinct lack of political will to develop a new, normative framework. And there are also concerns that if we emphasise that too much, then we could distract ourselves from far more uh, feasible prospects of 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 creating effective practices and legislative change at the local, national and regional levels, which, of course, together uh, form part of a global effort. Obviously this approach doesn't rule out the progressive development of the law at the international level, but nor is it contingent on it. And it's also important to remember that any international law, or any law really, needs to be implemented and enforced to have meaning in practice. 148 countries are bound by the Refugee Convention, and yet, as Eleanor said in her opening remarks, we now have more displaced people than at any time since World War II. So the problem then in the refugee context, for instance, is not an absence of law, but an absence of political will to implement the law. So while a treaty option might sound like the the racy let's do something approach, far more mundane strategies are actually likely to make a real difference on the ground and can be implemented now. If we have building codes, and implement and enforce those building codes, then people will be safer. If we have disaster warning systems in place, then people will have time to get themselves out of harm's way. We need laws and policies that allow people to remain in their homes where it's possible and where they desire to stay there, but we also need laws and policies that enable people to move somewhere else before disaster strikes and to receive assistance and protection if they are displaced. So in conclusion, while talk of sinking islands and climate change refugees may stimulate media interest and popular imagination, they're not necessarily a sound framework for policy-making. The evidence tells us that most people want to stay in their homes for as long as they can and to return there as quickly as possible if they are forced to move. But if they can't live safely and securely, then they might seek to move on. That's where good policy can play a role. Studies of floods in Bangladesh showed that when people received prompt and adequate assistance, they were much more likely to stay and rebuild than move on in search of work simply to survive. By contrast, a year after Typhoon Haiyan struck the Philippines, tens of thousands of people remained displaced because the authorities said it was too unsafe for them to return home but they weren't offered any alternative. We therefore need a comprehensive and complementary set of policy strategies to give people options and choices. We need legal interventions, we need technical and scientific interventions, disaster risk reduction strategies, climate change adaptation and mitigation, development strategies and migration opportunities. Together, these things will determine whether people are displaced for how long, and whether they can return home. (coughs) The nature and the timing of those policy responses will play a major role in determining outcomes following disasters, because they are what affects people's resilience and coping capacity. Thank you very much.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm usually quite a calm person. Of course, in front of such an important audience, I have to be a bit nervous, but I was really, really nervous on 18th March 2015. This was the last day of negotiations on the so-called Sendai framework on disaster risk reduction. The UN document adopted by more than one hundred and ninety uh, UN Member States that sets out an action programme on how to reduce the risks associated with disasters. We I like tell in a moment who we are, we were struggling hard in the negotiations to get human mobility evacuation, plan relocation, displacement into that text. But it was very very much contested and on that date in the evening a small group of ambassadors was called together to sort out the last remaining issues and our issues was among them we were very happy all our articles stayed they were not deleted I was again very very nervous recently on 13th July of this year This was the last day of negotiations in New York on the global compact on migration. A text that deals with many many aspects related to migration. Labour migration, remittances, securing borders, trafficking. And then a group of states have been fighting for inclusion of again human mobility in the context of disasters and climate change into that important text and again it was very very contested and it was the last day and we didn't know whether because always the last day compromises are forged our issue would survive it did survive good evidence bad politics or how to get from good evidence to good politics this is a case study it's an example and I think it's quite interesting to look back on how we, again, I'll tell you in a moment who we are, how we achieved this kind of progress, first steps, but at the same time breakthroughs, because all of that is very, very new, not in terms of discussions, but in terms of what governments actually agree on. Let's go back. 2010 Climate Change Negotiations COP, Conference of the State Parties to the uh, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in Cancun and governments there are looking at not only how to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions but also how to adopt, adapt to climate change to those consequences we cannot avoid and in that document there is one short paragraph where states basically say we agree that one of the big challenges of adapting to the effects of climate change is human mobility forced displacement, voluntary migration planned relocation and the question was how to take it from there how to give life, how to give content To these three or four lines in a long document, addressing many different issues. One year later, 2011, the then High Commissioner for Refugees, Antonio Guterres, the now uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, he wanted to put that issue on the agenda. He triggered different activities, and at the end of 2011, He convened a meeting in Geneva with ministers from many, many governments. And he wanted to get green light to start to have a formal discussion among governments on how to address displacement, migration, planned relocation in the context of disasters and climate change. The outcome was very, very negative. No, yet, nine, no, in all the different languages. And in that context, Norway and Switzerland stood up and said, well, if there is no appetite to discuss it within the United Nations, let's take the issue out of the UN. Let's come together those who really think it is an issue. Let's start a process of intergovernmental consultations among interested governments, particularly in areas that are very much affected already now and in the future by the impact of climate change. We called that an initiative. It was a group of nine states, among them Australia. We organized a series of consultations, the first one in this region hosted by Cook Islands in Rarotonga, but then also in other parts of the world, Horn of Africa, Central America and so on. And out of that came a document called it and that's an initiative protection agenda that tried to conceptualize the issue. who are the people who are affected? how should we talk about them? We shouldn't call them climate refugees we call them disaster displaced persons. What can we do? we can help them to stay. that's very much about disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation. but sometimes that's not good enough. So we should help them to move out of harm's way. This is about planned relocation within countries, something that is already happening also in new region here. Fiji is in the process of relocating about 40 villages away from the eroding coastlines. We should help them to move out of harm's way by facilitating migration across borders as a way to adapt to the impacts of climate change. And again, there are some good examples in this region, small ones, in Australia, in New Zealand. But then, again, this is not always good enough. So we also need to protect those who are actually displaced as internally displaced persons or persons displaced across borders. A whole toolbox was presented in that uh, Nansen Initiative Protection Agenda and much more. We identified lots of effective practices that already exist, and in the end, we got the endorsement of 109 states. But again, outside of the United States, uh, United Nations, and we started to feed all these messages into the formal processes, the formal processes in Sendai for the uh, disaster reduction framework, in many other activities. And more recently, most recently, into the negotiations on the Global Compact on uh, Migration. How did we do it, and why were we, I would say, quite successful, at least this far? We tried always when we had these consultations to bring in evidence. We didn't just bring together a bunch of officials, sometimes even ministers and then have a free-drawing discussion we commissioned studies, we synthesized what was known from the science but also analysis of existing laws and policies sociological analysis what do affected communities feel and think, how do they Uh, approach uh, these uh, issues, what are their experiences. And we confronted the participants in these consultations with the evidence. Second, we felt there's a lot to be learned within governments. If you just bring to the table representatives of the authorities dealing with migration issues, they won't be very open to things like let's protect people displaced across borders we already have so many refugees they won't be very open to open pathways for regular migration for affected but if you then also bring in people from ministries of environment then they start to learn from each other if you bring in those who are dealing with disaster management and can tell you yes we had this or that experience In some parts of the world like Central America our people have to flee across borders and we want them to be protected in the neighboring countries then it starts to change what was also very important was then when we were feeding these messages into the international uh, processes that there we really came up with a group of states fighting for these issues states from the South, from the North, from East, from West, from all the different, uh, different parts of the world. Because then you can change the usual UN dynamics, which very often is G77, the countries of the South versus the industrialized countries. Because then you have countries that are really affected by the issues that have a lot of credibility. In the global compact on migration, we got, I think, great language and I say language because it's just the beginning but it talks about the need to address climate change environmental uh, deterioration disasters as a driver of migration it talks about the need for better knowledge and data it talks about cross-border cooperation to be prepared, it talks about using humanitarian visa or temporary work permits in case where people have to flee across borders as a consequence of sudden onset disasters. It talks about, again, visa options for people who have to move in the context of slow onset changes opening up migration pathways. And all of that, as I said, if you look back at the know in all the different languages in 2011 is a big step forward if I try to kind of analyze what was really important in terms of having those first steps towards good uh, politics getting away from bad politics to good policies actually on the basis of good evidence And I think there are some lessons we can learn from. (coughs) First, it is important to bring into these processes evidence from different fields. Yes, science is very important. But also from law, from policy analysis. Bring together the experts with different backgrounds. Let them uh, learn from each other. What was in our case very important was building on present situations and the near future. One of the big challenges I think for the IPCC is that many of the predictions are far away and politicians always have the very short term perspectives. We were really looking at what's happening now. What was the reaction when drought in Somalia displaced 300,000 people across the border, not because of the conflict in Somalia, but because of famine what was the reaction when the earthquake, that's not climate change but it's a disaster in um, Haiti led to more than 100,000 people fleeing to neighbouring countries etc we were building on existing practices and that's important we are not just focusing on negative messages everything is bad we were very much Showing what the good options are, the toolbox, what can actually be done. So to conclude, my lesson is evidence is good. But in order to get from good evidence to good policies, we really have to embed the evidence into policy processes. We have to ensure that this evidence is owned by the participants of those processes. It's about learning processes. And then good evidence can lead to good policies. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much to you all for your insights, Dr. Kalen, Dr. McAdam, and Dr. Church. I think you've set up for us just how fraught. Uh, policy-making is in these critical areas of climate change and refugee or migration policy. So where is the noise on the issues coming from and how do we deal with it so that we see more (coughs) evidence-based policy-making? Is better communication of the facts the answer? What if the politicians just don't want to listen? Let me begin with you, Dr Church. You're clearly very frustrated that (coughs) despite good evidence on climate policy and its impacts, there's not enough policy action There's certainly not enough urgency. Here in Australia, some of our politicians are still debating whether human-induced climate change is even a thing. We'd be naive if we didn't recognise that there are major business interests intervening in the climate change debate. But even given that, why are what you say, are frankly, alarming facts, and I'm thinking about the Antarctic ice sheets and the, the feedback loops, why are these not enough to sway politicians?
2: You ask a good question, I don't have a good answer, I'm afraid. Um, in some sense, we have been very successful, I think. Climate change has been recognised, It is being acted on by many nations uh, and by many people in Australia. But you're right, uh, there has been, particularly in recent years, a small uh, minority of, of people. Uh, and not say so it's business per se. Much of business, I think, is actually on board. Business is actually asking for policy certainty. Every day. So that they can actually plan their future. Uh, it's government, I think, that has been dragging its feet. And only a small section Many of the state governments are leading the way. Why do we have this minority? I'm afraid I don't have a good answer for that. I think it's prejudice. I think it's lack of appreciation on the issues. And it's the issue of short-term focus versus the long-term importance of these issues for Australia.
3: And the
1: world. They just don't match the electoral cycle, the, the issues you're talking about.
2: Exactly. They do not match the electoral, electoral cycle, oh. but you know, on the other hand, we do have urgent issues. The Great Barrier Reef is dying before our very eyes, and all we can do is show half a billion dollars at some private little company. Um, we have major droughts in Australia. We had a bushfire starting in, in the middle of winter. Um, But we haven't seen anything in terms of climate change. We've had about one degree Celsius of warming so far. We've got another four degrees to come. These issues are going to be far more serious. And we're going to be committed to them unless we take action. Sorry, I don't think I have a good answer.
1: (laughs) Dr. McAdam, you described how, in a relatively new field, there's, there are gaps in the evidence. Um, when you're talking to politicians mm-hmm. or any, any sort of uh, people who are trying to do something in the field, do you think that more evidence, solid facts, would help you drive good decision-making in the area? Well, I think we now
0: have a lot more evidence than we had a decade ago, and, and the processes that um, Professor Kalin described, such as the an Nansen issue of platform on disaster displacement, have been key there. Um, I mean, I think the the evidence, one would think, ought to inform and drive good policy making. Um, Sometimes we don't obviously see that happening. But I think, too, um, I mean, one of the things in in this field is is thinking laterally as well about how can existing visa categories, for example, enable a country like Australia to help people who are affected by disasters. And something that none of us really would ever think about, and I'm sure that uh, the Australian government has never for a moment thought that it has um, created this opportunity. But after the um, New Zealand, the the Christchurch earthquakes, through the the arrangement that Australia and New Zealand have to enable New Zealanders to to come here, um, about 3,000 New Zealanders from Christchurch moved to Australia, utilising that mechanism as a kind of self-help strategy um, we would never describe that as a disaster visa or a climate change strategy. And yet because the mechanism was there, people could take advantage of it if they needed to. Anecdotally, we think most of those people went back home, but it never hit the headlines because people could um, use their own choices and agency to help themselves. And I think that's one of the things to think about too, is how can we utilise existing practices, expedite policy- processes, the people
1: in need without necessarily creating some whole thing. Dr. Cainan, you say we need more than evidence to convince politicians to act, and you described that, that process uh, with the global compact for migration. How big a role would you say, though, that the evidence does play in, in driving policymakers to act?
3: The evidence, I think, is a point of departure. Without the evidence, you won't get uh, any further. Uh, just to... Uh, mention one example uh, when, we are, when we are starting to push that idea there are already so many existing good practices, there are many instruments uh, Professor uh, can just mentioned one hmm, with uh, the uh, New Zealand-Australia um, uh, Free Movement uh, of Persons arrangement all of that didn't really help us unless we were able to show that at least 50 countries in the past 10 years have admitted people who were displaced in the context of disasters and many of them related to climate change to uh, weather uh, related events and then suddenly politicians wow 50 states you already have that So, for instance, in um, Central America we uh, brought uh, the uh, immigration departments together, also the disaster management uh, authorities, in um, an attempt to identify what exists and how it could be improved. So, in an attempt to really harmonize existing approaches. It resulted in a guide to effective practices to admit disaster and climate change displaced persons. And again, that's not the big convention, that's not the binding law, but it's practical, it's again the learning process. And I think that's important. There, for instance, uh, we uh, also helped to organize a simulation exercise between Costa Rica and Panama for the first time. A big disaster. First time, the immigration authorities were involved. So, the immigration director got the call at three in the morning. We have here three, uh, 300 families who want to come in. What should we do with them? That's exactly the kind of learning processes that are
1: important. You mentioned the
3: role that Australia played in the Nansen initiative.
1: Would it be right to say that once policymakers are removed from the domestic political headlines, they do
3: act more constructively? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, Dr Church, I'll come back to you because you've had plenty of experience in this sort of international consensus building too with the IPCC process. Uh, In your talk, you said that at the end of this rigorous scientific examination, scientists have their work effectively signed off on by government officials from 195 countries. They go through it line by line over this five-day process. Take us a little bit inside the process that you, you described when you were speaking there as extremely intense Where are the tensions? What are you arguing about?
2: Um, Much of the argument actually is about clear communication. Uh, As I said, the governments cannot change the science. They're not allowed to do that, and that's why the scientists are there to say, no, if you say that, it is incorrect. And so that that carries its weight. Um, But there are also political overturns always coming through, and it's clear where they're coming from and what. what They relate to a few nations in particular.
1: Name some names for us.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Some of the major oil producers uh, are typically objecting to everything that they can possibly object to. They don't always actually understand what they're saying. Uh, I recall the very first meeting I went to, uh, we were sent off, I was young and naive, to to negotiate with a Saudi Arabian delegation and they actually, all they needed was particular words to be in the final uh, document. It didn't matter exactly what the words said because they didn't understand. So there is a political overturn that comes through on occasions.
1: And you're saying it doesn't affect the science, but you also said that if there's no agreement between these politically inspired ideas and the science, the science gets dropped. I mean, you said it didn't happen in one of your processes, but can you take us through one where it has happened?
2: Uh, so, it, so I've seen it happen once uh, in the synthesis report from the last IPCC report where there was a particular box on what is dangerous with climate change. It was extremely controversial. And in the end, basically, they ran out of time. There might have been a question about whether the correct process had been followed as well. So it is critically important that you stick to process, that it's an open and transparent process.
1: But you have this limited five days, and you're saying, "Oh, we might have run out of time." How important would it be, do you think, for the scientists that that omitted section was
2: left in? It's it's, it's frustrating. Uh, a worse example of that was in uh, in the Working Group Three report, which was on mitigation, where large bodies of text just completely omitted on, from what I understand, to be very spurious grounds.
1: What did it relate to?
2: It's related to which nations were doing the emissions and how you grouped them. Okay, I think we need to hear which nations to talk about. <laughs> well, I think it, it, it's, it's obvious that certain nations uh, We're talking US,
1: China? India,
2: oil producers. Australia, the Saudi Arabia.
1: Where does Australia fit in there? Is Australia in there?
2: Uh, Australia's sort of... Has generally been supportive in my experience in IPCC processes. But where did Australia fit uh, in
1: a category like that? Would we have been grouped there or not? Uh,
2: we would have been, sorry, I, I don't know the details of that.
1: But in your view, that is the serious omission?
2: I don't think it changes the thrust of the report. But yes, there are details that would have been nice to have had survived through
1: that process. What's interesting is that, of course, we you know when, when the IPCC reports hit the media, and we reported on them you know, over many years, it's not seen as some compromise document. Everyone's always talking about, oh, this is so extreme. So it's really interesting when the, the process is clearly so...
2: So I, I think in working group one, which is what I'm in, mean, which is the science of climate change, you know, what is happening, and what are the projections? There hasn't been, that I'm aware of, an example where anything has been substantially lost. Uh, mostly it's been improvements in wording, making things clearer. Um, maybe there's been some slight nuances, but mostly it's has been well So in my own chapter last time, we were aware that it was going to be very controversial in fact not controversial uh, because we were projecting too high a rise but because some nations thought we were projecting too low a rise um, so we prepared very well for that final plenary and we knew what the questions were going to be we knew where they were going to come from it's very difficult and to get agreement across
1: 195 nations <laughs> and
2: it's still true so it is possible to do it
1: now, Dr. McAdam, you say that climate change and disaster can be categorised in, in a variety of ways. Is there one category that's more likely than others to, to lead to political action?
0: That's a good question, and I suspect. I mean, it may come down to an advocacy strategy. I mean, I, I don't do advocacy in that sort of activist sense at all. Um, but it may be if you see a monument, then that's. The one that you try and trying to seize and you frame something in order to try and get action on that front. But I mean, from my perspective, I'm coming at this from a human rights framework, from a protection perspective. Um, and so, but, but at the same time, I think it's, that has to be informed by all these other disciplines that, that we've been discussing. So, but for me, what, what matters is that your evidence base is, is right. Um, and I, I mean, what I don't think is appropriate is to uh, stretch or oversell something simply to try and get a, a political response if it's not actually going to have the effects that we desire.
1: There's a very interesting interplay, isn't there, between uh, the language that you use and political action. Uh, Dr. Kalen, when you're negotiating with policy policymakers in the international forums, why is disaster more palatable to them than climate change?
3: I think it's more visible. you have it on TV, in the media. It's uh, easy to understand for everyone if I would be in that situation. I would hope that I would be protected in another country. So it's more immediate. It's, 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 it's closer to human experience. Whereas climate change seems to be a rather abstract concept.
1: And yet you were very keen on getting the term climate change into the
3: global compact. Why did that term matter so much to you? Well, uh, because it's one of the drivers of this And we have heard about the the, the scenarios regarding sea level rise and then it's very obvious that people will have to move. And if you're looking at this region, if you're looking at the low-lying Pacific uh, Uh, islands and uh, the low-lying states, uh, then uh, we are talking again about the realities of people who have to move. What we felt was it would be wrong just to focus on climate change, because then in policy terms you would kind of even discriminate against, for instance, victims of an earthquake. Or you would it make, or you would make it too easy for authorities to say, "Okay, we accept this has been a weather-related event, but not climate change." So the disaster entry point is a powerful one. Disaster defined as a situation where you have a natural hazard uh, to which people are exposed and they are too vulnerable to resist to the impact, to deal with the impact. And that's why they have to go.
2: So, I think there's actually a, a, another element to Walter's answer and that is a disaster is a, it's a natural phenomenon and people are subject to it. But as soon as you mentioned climate change, you're implying that we or somebody is responsible and that we could actually change our action and minimise it. But that comes at a cost, reducing emissions in some way changing how we live our lives. And that makes it very much more difficult. And people don't want to accept that. See the discussion about the current drought. It's all natural. There's no element of climate change in it.
1: Unless you talk to some of the farmers. And staying with you, Dr Church, you say that communication about science does need to come from both scientists themselves and major agencies like the CSIRO. But when you are a CSIRO scientist, you do pay a very high price for speaking out clearly about the science on climate change. Given that, how hard is it to encourage other scientists to speak out?
2: Well, I, I think it is difficult. Putting aside, firstly, the constraints that <coughs> an organisation like CSIRO might brought you. Clearly speaking about complex issues to public, uh, to politicians such that you engage them is difficult in itself. It requires thought and care. About <coughs> organisations like CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology are at least semi-governmental organisations and there's much stronger <laughs> control on what you can and cannot, cannot say. Now, I've generally actually found myself supportive Although I've often walked a very fine line, and I know on occasions I have stepped over that line from Cyrus point, even when I've been acting as an individual, exercising my personal right, rather than my right as a sarah scientist.
1: Well, you were one of the casualties when CSIRO decided to scale back its climate change. Scholars and scientists worldwide wrote to the government about your scientific merit, your integrity. Anyone would have thought that would protect you, and it didn't. It must have had a chilling effect on the scientific community. Do you think it was limited to government-employed scholars, or do you think it did... You know, this this fear issue is one that that affects all scientists.
2: Uh, It certainly affects government scientists and, and much more. You know, in my case, I was senior enough uh, that I could speak out relatively freely. Young scientists with a family, a career to, mm. to think about, it's much more difficult mm. for them to do that mm. than it is for somebody who's getting to the end of their career. Mm. And in some sense, is willing to break the rules to make sure that community
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about the CSIRO. What is going on there? Why are they so (laughs) reluctant to give fearless (laughs) advice to government? Is it as simple as as vulnerability over funding?
2: Uh, When I first joined CSIRO, we were known just for that, giving fearless advice. Didn't matter what the politician wanted to hear, he got the advice that Sarah was going to give him. Over time, in my view, things have changed. Um, we have so wanted to be known as giving trusted advice. To me, that always says trusted by who to say what. Um, and I think one of the big issues has been the funding issue. Having to go out and earn the external funding where there's no framework for you to do that. Uh, the dependence on government money, and I think also um, the bureaucratisation and the um, adoption or, or the appointment of senior people in SARO who are not necessarily top class scientists.
1: Yes, you said that it should be run by scientists, not mm. top class scientists. What difference would that make?
2: I think that's a minimum requirement. That alone is not enough, but at least then, they understand the science and its implications when they speak to government. And I think that's actually important. It's also important in the recruiting in what science is done in the organization, because they can make proper judgments, as distinct from making judgments about how much money is being received for that piece of work, and that's a big difference in my opinion.
1: Dr. McAdam, what role do and should university researchers play in advising government? And is there a similar sense of, of fear about, about speaking on an issue that may be politically sensitive? Well, I think we have a responsibility to
0: use our, um, our independence, but the expertise that we have through our capacity to do long-term, comparative, um, context-specific, yeah. not context-specific, context but historically uh, broad research um, like the Centre does, and to bring that to bear on, on policy-making. Um, and I think that means approaching issues, whether they be highly politicised or not, in a measured and, and hard-headed way. I mean, I think if you are emotional about the issues, then you will simply be labelled as you just one of those who's you know, off chanting with slogans and placards and the rest of it. And I think that's a great shame because I think universities have a huge amount to contribute and um, the you know the evidence that we are uncovering and the research that we're doing can feed into policy that too often is very reactive and that doesn't have that... Um, sort of far-reaching strategic
1: approach. But do you think Australian universities are feeding this information in well enough? I think they're trying to. They've got a way to go.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's it's not just down to us. It's also how receptive politicians and bureaucracy are going to be and, and how to find those channels to, to get that information in. I mean, I think one of the things academics struggle with a lot is that we're used to writing... 10,000-word articles, well, that's actually not going to cut it. We have to have a maximum one-page brief, so actually translating our research is very challenging. Um, But that's
2: the only way we're really going to cut through. Uh, Can I just say there too, Eleanor, my impression at UNSW, since I've been there, which I'm only there part-time, is that they've been extremely supportive, extremely positive and proactive in supporting this whether they've got the connection right to in the policy, I don't know, but I think they're trying. They're doing a good job. Yeah.
1: Coming to you, Dr. Carlin, do you see similar problems in other countries where some scientists are afraid to speak out?
3: Yes, I think um, this does exist. Um, it depends very much on the country concerned. It's. Difficult to generalize, of course. Uh, the problem uh, is probably not so much uh, that they are afraid to speak out because they will be criticized, etc. But then funding is always an issue. And uh, there, of course, uh, politicians um, can have a major role to the extent that research is funded uh, and uh, universities are dependent on, 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 on governments. But then on the other hand, The good thing is that in most countries um, it's not just black and white, but um, also the white Republic is is divided. There are those who are denying or who are critical of what scientists said, but then there there, there is always a lot of support.
1: I I guess uh, one of the questions that one, one would raise internationally is can you have effective communication of the facts driving? policy actually, if politicians just don't want to hear, and I'm thinking of course of uh, the Trumps, the Abbots, the detator
3: is at our times. Well I think the big problem is not so much fear to speak up, the big problem is that some of the politicians are not listening and uh, that's probably the much much bigger problem and uh, leading to frustration in uh, academic circles that we are doing all this work and then nobody's listening to it. I wouldn't uh, focus now just on uh, President Trump. Of course, he's not listening, but he's not listening to anybody except himself, it seems. Um, and in that context, again, what is important is are the political dynamics in the country. And that's what I was uh, mentioning: the notion of learning processes, and I think. That's where academics can really contribute to They also need to engage with different communities where they have to go out and sometimes even make their hands dirty, uh, take some risks uh, talking to different communities, bring them on board. And when I look at some colleagues then I would feel that some there are too hesitant to do that. And you have to engage with for instance, to coal industry and, and to oil producers, etc., etc. And again, maybe we will have some progress.
1: I'm going to open up to questions from the floor in just a moment, but just a, a final question to, to you two on a, on a similar issue. It, it, it's a bit of a right question given the state of our federal politics at the moment, but if politicians are unwilling to listen, to you first, Dr Church, I mean, how do scientists and researchers adjust to that? What options do you have? Do you rely on communicating with the public, communicating with social activists,
2: is that enough? No, that, that's not enough. But it is a, an important part to communicate directly with the public, with uh, different groups. I, I agree with Walter it's important to be able to go out and engage uh, with different groups. So for example, in my case, going out and speaking to coastal councils, either individually as a council or, or as a group. Um, But there also needs to be uh, paths from science right into government. And that's where I think CSIRO and Bureau of Meteorology have an advantage because they have that political link. And it's actually hard for universities to do that. Um, I wanted to make a note here. So the Australian Panel of Environmental Lawyers has uh, advocated for a major rewrite Australian environmental laws to protect the Australian environment. And of course climate change is not the only issue here. There are many other issues. And they would call for the establishment of what they call the Commonwealth Environment Commission commission or Commonwealth Sustainability Commission uh, to provide advice and to oversee things and for something like a National Environment Protection Authority to actually do the end and do the science, and that these would be two useful steps uh, which will fall somewhere in between where universities in Cyrus sit and where the government is.
1: Dr. McCann, do you have a comment on that? Where, what do you do if, if, you, if you can't find the politicians, obviously? Where do you go?
0: Well, I think, I mean, what we do at the Centre is we have a number of different audiences I suppose that we speak to and I think at the end of the day we need to recognize that Well, we need to turn on the radio to realize that politicians come and go Um, but it's also up to us in terms of who we vote in and I think that very often we feel quite disempowered but at the same time we do actually have a very important voice at the ballot box and even if the politicians are listening directly to us at any given time, then we can use the
1: other channels that we speak to and, and hopefully provide a message in that.